Acast recommends. This is Sports Horn. Hi, I'm Anthony Richardson, and I present the Ian Five Ankles Breakfast Show with former professional footballer turned current pundit Ian Five Ankles. He'd have 50 England caps if he wasn't Spanish. Listen to us on Sports Horn, the UK's third most popular sports radio network. I'm calling from Portsmouth, and I am absolutely disgusted. Wrong show, sorry, Colin. Oh, you'd love it if I rang into the wrong show, wouldn't you? So catch the Ian Five Ankles Breakfast Show only on Sports Horn. Sports Horn is a stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. ACAST is the home of podcasting, including such shows as The Logbooks, The High Performance Podcast, and the one you're listening to right now. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices, and our perspectives all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adega Kay, your host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. And this is the third and final edition of our special book club episodes, where we're exploring the 2021 Women's Prize shortlist. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Women's Prize podcast. I'm really excited to say that I'm joined today by three wonderful guests, journalist and author of Jogon and How to Kill Your Family, Bella Mackey, Okechuku Nuzelu, teacher and the award-winning author of The Private Joys of Nena Maloney, and journalist Nell Frizzell, whose work has appeared everywhere from Vice to The Telegraph and who this year released her book, The Panic Years. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. 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 They're all here to discuss, compare and contrast two of the incredible books from the Women's Prize shortlist. Our very own book club where you can learn more about the titles selected for this year's prize and hopefully get reading some of them if you haven't already. This episode, we're delving into Piranesi by Susanna Clark and How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House by Cherie Jones. The discussion includes reference to domestic violence and sexual assault. So, Nell... First of all, can you tell me about your experience reading these two books together? Um, what was your initial reaction? Well, um, Piranesi, uh, which now I say it out loud, sounds much more like hay fever medication than I realised when I was seeing it written down. Um, <laughs> or Nando's sauce. <laughs> or Nando's sauce. Is this, I think it's a really beautiful, poetic um, book. Of, and it has a sort of strange uh, sense of dread and doom, or at least that's how I, I found it. Um but the the narrator is himself quite an orderly, um, upbeat person. We don't we get kind of biographical details a little bit as it goes along, and then in a kind mm. of mad rush at the end, we find out much more about them. But they seem like a kind of eighteenth century sort of polymath who lives in this strange giant house full of tides and seawater and seabirds, and they're covered in shells and bits of seaweed, and then other people from another world, which is a world that we kind of recognise as our world, pops in and out. And then it was very odd to read that in conjunction with How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House, which was a book, again, set beside the sea, but the narrators are all women. The sense of doom is much more acute and much more, um, I suppose, tangible, that there is the sort of threat of the men in their lives. And so I suppose looking at the two books together, the thing I was struck by is the, the threat of the unknown versus the threat of the known. And I think Piranesi is full of the threat of the unknown and how the one on Sister Sweeps Her House has this really tangible, forceful fear of the known and the intimate and the, you know, 
the, the very people you should trust most are the ones who might harm you the worst. Mm. Thank you so much now. Okay, Chuku, did you feel similarly? Did you feel that the books spoke to each other in any way or were quite removed in terms of theme? Do you know, I completely agree. I just think when I first started reading Pir- Piranesi, I think the Piranesi, the, um, I, you know, I loved it. But when I first started reading it, I was like, you know, it's, it's very, as you said, it's got this kind of 19th century feel to it. There's like, and I was like, oh my goodness, like capitalized nouns. Well, I don't know about this. And then I kind of just got sucked into it. It's kind of like a David Mitchell novel in that way that at first you started, you start reading and you're just really not sure. And then suddenly you're on this like magical mystery ride and it's genre bending and it's, and it's moving and funny and doing all these fantastic things and really quite a slim volume. Um, and it's really not the kind of novel where I would, that I would normally sort of gravitate to. I would normally gravitate to something like Cherie Jones's book, which has these, you know, it's, it's written by a black woman, it's exploring um, black life experience. And that's the kind of thing I guess I would more naturally like pick up off a bookshelf. Um, so it was really great to read these two together because I loved them both, but I wouldn't necessarily have bought or read them both if I hadn't been sort of suggested to. Mm. Bella, what was your experience? Yeah, that's really interesting what Kachuka just said, because I don't think I would necessarily have gravitated particularly towards Piranesi, especially because I found the, you know, the initial intro so sort of, it was almost like a fantasy world. And and I thought, okay, if the whole book is going to be this kind of very ephemeral kind of, you know, quite mysterious place, you know, that I can't quite get a handle on, I'm not sure that I would have been gripped by it and there's a specific point in the book without giving too much away where what Nell says you know there's suddenly a world we recognize as our own there are hints of that come in and I think my ears pricked up and I sort of went oh okay right I see that there's kind of there's another thing happening here um and and I completely loved it I thought it was sort of miraculous and interesting and optimistic in some ways and then um with Cherie Jones's book I mean you know, it is, it's a gruelling read, you know, and, and it is kind of about trauma and pain and, you know, what it's like to be a woman. And as Nell said, you know, the kind of known dangers. And actually, I read an interview with Sherry Jones, where she kind of apologises to her reader saying, you know, if you read it, thank you, because I know it's a hard read. And it is a hard read. But you know, she writes so beautifully, that, you know, you're gripped by it, even though it's quite gruelling. So um, I loved both of them in different ways. Um, but as Nell said, it was, they're strange reads together you know they are they're definitely one after another it's sort of it was a strange a strange couple of days (laughs) (laughs) oh so Piranesi by Susanna Clark is our first book um before we dive in here's a reading from one of this year's judges Elizabeth Day as well as my regular meetings with the other and the quiet consolatory presence of the dead there are the birds Birds are not difficult to understand. Their behaviour tells me what they are thinking. Generally, it runs along the lines of, is this food? Is this? What about this? This might be food. I'm almost certain that this is. Or occasionally, it is raining. I do not like it. While ample for a brief neighbourly exchange, such remarks do not suggest a broad or deep intelligence. Yet it has occurred to me that there may be more wisdom in birds than appears at first sight, a wisdom that reveals itself only obliquely and intermittently. Once, it was an evening in autumn, I came to the doorway of the 12th Southeastern Hall, intending to pass through the 17th vestibule. 
I found that I was unable to enter it. The vestibule was full of birds, and the birds were all a flight. They circled and spiralled, creating a whirling dance. They filled the vestibule like a column of smoke, which grew darker and denser in places, and the next moment lighter and airier. I have witnessed this dance on several occasions, always in the evening and in the later months of the year. So now, can you please give us? I mean, you really sort of touched on the themes of the book earlier, but can you give us a very quick summary of what this book's about again? Yeah, so it starts, I mean, I would say it opens almost like a kind of legend. It starts with um, this, uh, I don't know if you've either, any of you had the fun of reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland at university like I did, but there, it has that sort of same feel of these, um, there's a character, a narrator who is washed up in this giant house that is full of big empty halls, the sort of classical building full of statues and tides come in and out. And there are, um, it seems that they're only company uh, giant albatrosses or rooks or seabirds and fish. And then the seaweed that they seem to make everything in their life out of, which has a very, you know, obviously you think of the tempest and you think of those like, mm. um, kind of weird liminal spaces where someone is thrown onto the kind of the bare bones of existence but what's so strange about it is that the narrator has this amazing kind of encyclopedic mind and they keep all these notes in little notebooks and I actually wrote to the margin I find them very annoying they seem like a train <laughs> they seem like a kind of uh, one of those train spotter bods but then I, rem I thought of um, you know, Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook, where it's kind of the keeping of a journal is in itself a sort of active identity. And that becomes really interesting later in the book when it seems that bits of the journals have been torn out, they've been renumbered. There's this character called The Other who comes in and warns them that they're going to lose their mind. There's another character called The Prophet who warns that they're going to lose their mind. And so you get these sort of glimpses of the other world, but with each of them is this over sort of not overwhelming, but like I'd say a running under, like undercurrent, if that's not too cheesy, uh, threat of losing your mind, which I found really powerful uh, as someone who would last maybe 45 minutes on an island on my own. <laughs> oh, 45 minutes is a good 44 minutes better than I would do. So. <laughs> would, you, would you say that you overall enjoyed the book now? I loved it. I really loved it from actually from the first page. I found it, there's just enough, you know, I'm not someone who enjoys sci-fi. I don't particularly like fantasy, but there was just enough mystery about this, just enough uncertainty, just enough kind of, you know, when there was a hint at things being more complicated and more interesting than they at first seem, it's, you know, I find that really um, compelling. And for all that I found the narrator annoying, I found them quite their sort of naivety and charm, you know, eventually really grew on me. And also, uh, you know, as a big swimmer, this sort of vision of a submerged house or a semi-submerged house is something mm -hmm. nightmarish. You know, I, it's the kind of thing that pops up in my dreams, but the narrator loves it so much that you find a kind of joy in these. There's literally a, a man called the biscuit box man because his bones are carried around in an old biscuit tin. And like that... <laughs> If it were handled badly, it would just be either sort of grotesque or naff. But it's actually really poignant. Like he's the narrator really cares for these dead bone people, and he brings them flowers and offerings and stuff. And I found that really heartening. So actually, yeah, for all that 
I think as a lot of us have said, it's not the, a book that immediately draws you in like a Raymond Chandler. It does nevertheless have this, there's a sort of tang about it that I found really engaging. Thank you. And Bella, how did you feel about the book? Yeah, I I I loved the book, um, especially as I said, like when I realised that there was something else going on. Um, I read an interview with Susanna Clark actually, where she talked about how before she wrote it, she'd had like a really bad incident of brain fog, and and she'd had a kind of depressive episode. And I found that really interesting from the perspective of of then reading the book, which I think it it does feel like a sort of almost like a an image originally of kind of mental illness that you're sort of on your own in this incredibly confusing palace, which is kind of, you know, like a mind, you know, everything's incredibly mysterious. He's on his own, things keep changing. You know, he doesn't know what he can trust. And and I found that really interesting from the perspective of, she said, you know, that she'd been struggling previously, you know, before she wrote the book. Um, so I found that quite interesting, this kind of allegory of mental health. And I think Nell's right. I found the narrator really annoying at the beginning. I thought you're so trusting and optimistic and, yeah. <laughs> you know, you get given some seaweed and you're sort of grateful and, and you think it's thrilling. And, you know, every there's, he was sort of not curious about anything in a way. You know, he's living in this strange place and he doesn't know why he, you know, why he's there or, or what's going to happen. And he just is sort of accepting of it. Mm. Um, and that I did find really annoying. I thought, what is wrong with you? You know, it's cold, you know, you've got no friends. This man kind of gives you, you know, the occasional kind of tiny gift and you're so grateful. Um, but then obviously as things change out of the book and you understand kind of more why he's like he is, I sort of found like, okay, fine, I can accept him. You know, I, it's not just cause you're sort of, you know, an annoying optimist. Um, but yeah, and then I think as the book changes and, and, and you know, I don't know how, we don't want to give spoilers, I guess, but, you know, as this kind of, as the perspective sh like shifts on what's happening um, and then there's this whole other thing about kind of, you know, escapism and, and, and whether you want to leave the modern world. And I think maybe, you know, there is a desperation in the modern world to kind of escape, isn't there? You know, there's always people looking to kind of go and live in kind of remote places and, you know, get off the grid. Mm. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting kind of... Mm idea behind it as well yeah I mean it's a bit further than bloody Orkney though isn't it this it is yeah it is <laughs> just a bit <laughs> okay Chukri, what did you think is it one that you would recommend definitely definitely you know I I like I said before I, I you know when I started I really wasn't sure what was going on how to respond if I liked it um but I found there's a real, there was such a tenderness to the portrayal of the protagonist, whose name I guess I probably should reveal because it's a bit of a spoiler. But um, the, there was such a tenderness to the way that he was portrayed as this very devoted, loving inhabitant of this world, which he sees himself as being in this symbiotic relationship with even though there's a lot about it that he doesn't understand and certainly a lot that, that we as readers don't understand at first he has this very loving relationship with the world that I thought at first I was like oh okay so this is like a metaphor for how we should all be in the world and it's like you know we should we should all like live in this sort of ecosystem which we love and which loves us back and we don't always understand it but we respect it okay I get it and then like I got to like page 11 and realized it was a completely different thing but there was something that really drew me to that and then of course what we realizes that he has been without spoiling it that he has been um sort of cowed and um, infantilized by what we think is the world and then what we realize is in fact certain specific men um and then we realize that those men are in some ways quite character 
like really quite characterize the world. <laughs> so it kind of uh, telescopes out and in and then out again. And that's a really interesting, I guess, connection point to Sheree Jones's novel, which I guess we'll talk about later, but which is also, you know, that if there's a binding theme of both of these novels, I think it's probably that men are trash. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. I feel like that's usually the point being made by everything, whether it's inadvertent or intentional. It's usually the takeaway <laughs> of those things. Um, it's that's okay. also a good point that both books end with this sort of, I think, like increased momentum towards possible escape. And I think that's something that both of them do really nicely. And like, it, I don't think it gives much away to say at the end of Piranesi that it almost turns into a cop drama at the end. And I don't think like, you know, it's, it's sort of subtle enough that that won't tell you what happens. Um, but I thought this is really funny. It's almost like I'm sort of expecting a character from Line of Duty to crash into the end of here. <laughs> it's very, very unlikely ending. But that sense of possible escape, um, sort of the weighing up between a safety in oppression or a risk in escape, I think is, is sort of, it charges both books towards their final pages in a really lovely way. Yeah, that's a really, both of you, that's a really interesting kind of observation on it, which I hadn't really connected. And I think also... I mean, at the end of Piranesi, you know, again, without trying to give anything away, which is, I've realised, incredibly hard. But, you know, you realise that, you know, actually, you're right. Like, there's a safety in the oppression and he can't quite leave that, mm. you know. And actually, you get a sense that he'll never feel completely empowered and happy by his escape. And he'll always be searching to go back. And in the case of how the one-armed woman's sweet sister sweeps her house, you think, you know, whatever her escape looks like it's going to be really hard you know it's not going to be mm. this kind of happy rainbow ending it's going to be an incredibly difficult thing mm. and so yeah these idea of esca happy escapes you know there, there isn't such a thing you know they're both held back by this kind of call to where they were you know what they were oppressed by and that's really interesting yeah and both mm. now I think about it both books also have this the sort of brooding threat of the tunnel underneath them like the the deepest like the greater depths the even greater unknown the submerged horror so you're like if you can carry along on the surface for all that it's for all that it might be dreadful um there is a greater threat underneath that that you don't want to fall into yeah, I just wanted to ask you, Akechukwu, um, Nell and Bella have both been quite frank about at least initially finding the protagonist annoying. <laughs> so how, <laughs> what did you think of the protagonist? Um, yeah, where, where, where were you sort of lying on that? I really, you know, I, I can completely understand why you, why somebody would say they find him annoying because he is very, it takes up a lot of, um, space in the book in, in a sense his kind of his very diligent notes on this world that he lives in and that we as readers only partially understand so I can completely understand why you would say that was annoying but for me I guess it was just part of this portrait of a character who was quite vulnerable like he he was paying all this attention to the world and trying to understand it and making all these very, very careful notes and observing things and, and wondering at things and the marvel, that, you know, the marveling that he, he spends so much time just marveling at stuff and <laughs> thinking how wonderful things are and how strange and beautiful. And I found that really tender when you compare it and I suppose contrast it to how little he really does know about his situation. Like he knows a lot about the tides that come in and go out and he, and he, talks about the statues and the, and the halls with such reverence but then when you contrast that with the the fact that really he's been kidnapped and taken advantage of mm. um if that was not a massive spoiler it, it paints him as somebody who is really quite childlike in his vulnerability mm. and i found that so moving even if even if i didn't always understand what was going on and i will freely admit that there's quite <laughs> there's probably quite a lot about this book that i just did not understand but 
I, I did find it really moving and I, I, found, I found myself quite... I found it's, there's something quite magnetic about it, I suppose. Yeah, that childlike thing, you've just reminded me of one of my favourite bits in the book is when he stumbles across the written word Battersea. No, someone says yes. to him the word Battersea and he yes. breaks it down into two words because that relates to the the sort of environment that he's in, the battering of the sea. And at first he's like, oh, this is a nonsense word. And he's like, oh, no, Battersea. And then later in the book it comes to mean something else altogether. You know, it has another um, meaning later on. And mm. I thought that was a really nice, you know, it's really easy to get sort of all up in yourself about language and, you know, trying to do something clever, clever. But I thought that was just a lovely sort of moment of breaking down text and meaning into something that can be pulled apart and can be engaged with differently according to your culture and your climate and your environment. And I thought I thought that was a really good, a nice bit. And then there's a really funny bit where they're talking about the magic of Oh, is it in this one though? There's one like the magic of Birmingham and Manchester, and like these yes. really, <laughs> like really brilliant prosaic places. And what? And I say that as someone who's lived in two of those. But you know, like they, they come to signify something like glamorous but deadly. And it's like it's it's Birmingham, guy. <laughs> <laughs> And I have to say, as somebody who lives in Manchester and has lived in Manchester my whole life, I, I, that was something that I did really enjoy. The fact that the book <laughs> spends quite a lot of time in Manchester, I was like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think funnily enough, like the annoying thing is just, I think because I'm quite cynical and he's so childlike and sort of great, grateful and optimistic. And I sort of just thought, oh, you know, come on, mate, like, you know, question this you know there's there's more going on here this is weird but in a way he's sort of Stockholm syndrome to the house you know mm. it's so it's so magical and there's so much to explore and and asking questions you know pushing his own memory would be dangerous you know so actually mm. he's sort of come to accept where he is and and as you said Okachuku like you know he writes these notes and that's his way of making sense of it you know that's his way of kind of understanding things and you said earlier you know this idea of maybe maybe it's a kind of a thing about being sort of happy with your lot and and maybe you know we have to treat the world better and there's there is a kind of climate change thing going on there isn't there this kind of you know he lives very simply and he lives by the kind of the tides and he understands when the weather will you know when the weather will come and stuff mm. and you know he sort of recycles everything and lives incredibly frugally and and is sort of happy with his lot you know and yeah. I think probably in the modern world that's quite hard to understand and quite scary because you think oh god in 20 years we might all have to live like that mm. and so yeah I mean I think it was just I think because I'm so cynical and he was so kind of grateful for this very strange and kind of quite grim existence mm. um I think probably I could have been a bit more generous to him as a character it is strange and it is grim but I think there's something really another funny moment is when they put all the trinkets back in their hair and all their amazing decorations that then you get that really like tempesty feeling of there being a kind of weird bog creature that's covered in like jangly bits <laughs> a bit like do you remember in take that when howard suddenly got white dreads and he was covered in like little <laughs> shells it really reminded me of that video but like oh there, so it, there is a simplicity and it, it does have sort of it does um, have correlation to kind of early civilizations, but you remember that in even early civilizations, text and decoration are as important as nutrition and warmth. Mm. Like, of course, of course, that character is drawn to the sort of the tiny elements of identity and sort of decoration that that everybody mm. else is. Can I ask? Did any yeah. of you did any of you want to live in the house for a bit? No. 
oh yeah i'd go for a bit <laughs> i'd go for it i'd go for my 45 minute holiday <laughs> i'd love to see the night sky the description of the night in that house is incredible i think those yeah because i did find it quite seductive in a way you know I, I i don't think i'd want to be there for more than a week but i did think i could understand at the end his reluctance at leaving permanently and mm. so i think maybe mm. i got stockholm syndrome by the house as well actually by the end of it <laughs> And I found that so interesting. It was the fact that by the end of the novel, this this person, and I, I'm really going to try very hard not to spoil anything, but I found it so interesting that by the end of the novel, it wasn't just that, oh, right, um, the, the resolution has come and everything is going to revert mm. back to this other thing. It was, he is neither one person nor the other. He's a third yeah. person that is a kind of um, joining of these two identities and something else which, you know, he's, he's made up of what he, what he is now, what he used to be in the journey in between. And I thought that was so interesting in a novel which imagines other worlds and, and completely wild, fantastical possibilities. It refuses to imagine a resolution, as I think one of you touched on before, it refuses to imagine a resolution that's too perfect. And I thought that was really mm. brave of Susanna Clarke. You're so right, actually. Yeah, there yeah. could have been a much more simple kind of, he's back in he's back in his previous life and, you know, it's difficult, but he's made the best of it and he's happy. And actually, you're completely right. There was a kind of third way there, which was much more interesting and sort of perhaps, you know, if you're a reader like me, I like, I like sharp endings where I understand everything and there's a kind of happiness to it, but you're right. It was, a, it was a much more interesting, a much more interesting approach from her. Yeah. And I'm sorry to bring it back to, I mean, maybe this is an obvious thing to say, but it also feels like a very strange book to read after a year and a half of it being in and out of lockdowns mm. where your like interior world and your exterior world shrink and shrink and shrink until you, you know, I think it's, obviously wasn't written in those circumstances but it does give a certain poignancy to the book to read it now about someone escaping escaping into another world that is in itself just another house <laughs> you know and that you're still <laughs> trapped within the confines of architecture and your own sort of imagination yeah definitely and the fact that by the end of the novel um when he do, you know he's brought back to this old world I'm really sorry if I'm sorting stuff here. He's brought back <laughs> to this old world and, and 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 we hear about all the people who've missed him mm. and he just has no recollection of them. Yeah. And I thought, what well, that is what it's in a sense, that's what it's like now to be like, oh, I can hug people again. Yeah. But wait, what what's hugging? Yes. And yeah. You know? Yeah, and also, yeah. you know, he's come back changed, as you said, you know, so actually all the people that missed him and loved him, you know. For them, there'll be heartbreak there as well because he's not going to be the same, is he? And I think yeah. after lockdown, lots of people have changed, you know, and actually friendships are different and relationships are different. And there is a loss there, isn't there? Of kind of the person that you remembered a year and a half ago might not necessarily be the same person. And kind mm. of how do you yeah. how do you get over that? You know, is does he have the same relationship with his family? Well, no. But for them, obviously, you know, they sort of would expect him to come back and be the same. And that's kind of an, it's a tragic element. But then I did love his relationship with um, his police officer. You know, I thought that was a fantastic kind of, bond, you know, unexpected bond at the end, actually. Mm. Mm. It's because women aren't trash, Bella. That's why. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much, guys. Um, I want to ask you guys about... How do Valentine Ketterly and Raphael compare as characters? Let's ask you now, how do you think their motivations and actions differ? It sort of, again, breaks down into a, a gender binary in a strange way. But I think there was this whole question about the transgressive thought. What is the attraction of transgressive thought and how far down 
that path can you go before you yourself transgress you, you know your moral boundaries or your psychological boundaries and so I think there's this um I don't know I don't know how much detail to go into it but there does seem to be the ability of one to sort of understand that within transgressive thought you have to keep your humanity and you have to go and rescue the human and you you know even if someone is exploring something that seems electric and full of possibility there might still be suffering in there and you know like we were saying there'll be other people who are hurt by those consequences while the other seems to just sort of long for the the pursuit of knowledge at any cost and you know Mm. the person that's called the other in the book is you know obsessed with the measurements and the dimensions of this world and completely uninterested in the humanity of the person who's tracing it for Mm. them Mm. because men are trash (laughs) <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to stop saying that. Sorry. I think that's going to be the episode it's title. Mom, okay, Chuku, like open the gate and I am running through it. Well, <laughs> he's a man, so I'm you know. not <laughs> um, What do you think, okay, Chuku, in terms of their motivations? Yeah, it was really interesting and I completely agree. I think that um, Valentine Ketterly, he's this very, and Lawrence on sales, they're these very interesting characters that in the sense reminded me of some of the men in Cherie Jones's book because as as we just heard they're they're very that they it's not that they're not passionate it's not that they don't have things that drive them but they completely lack this they've just never really learned to see other people's needs as equal to their own which is how we get this character the Piranesi character Piranesi who stumbles into this world and is sort of sort of lured in and drawn in and I just found that absolutely fascinating because when I when I think about um, the, char- the male characters in how the one-armed sister sweeps her house, the people like um, Adan or is it Aiden mm. um, and um, the tone, they're these characters who are dangerous, absolutely, and there's a lot of violence in that book, but they're, see- they're portrayed as broken, whereas um, Susanna Clark doesn't really spend that time um, in you know, it's wondering, oh, how did Lawrence Arnsales get to be such a jerk, and why is you know um, Valentine Catalie so incredibly fate- like fatally selfish? What, how how is that? It's, I just found that portrayal really interesting because it's kind of presented as this brute fact, like this fate accompli. This is the way they are. Accept it in a way that. Mm. The, the ever-present violence on a much grander scale is presented in Cherie Jones's book on an individual level. That, that there's that I guess that, and I don't say this as a criticism. I think it's very interesting, and, and, I, and I appreciate it. There's that kind of lack of curiosity about the origin of the the, the brutality mm. of these men, um, which I found very very interesting. And in, in a sense, it's kind of just well, this is the way they are. Mm. And I and I think what is most fascinating to me is that, is that that is actually quite an effective writing technique. She didn't need to explain it. It didn't need, it didn't need some grand explanation or some kind of sympathetic portrait. Mm. It just was completely convincing as fact. Mm-hmm. Bella, do you see Lawrence on sales as a villain? Yeah, I think the people in the book who sort of orchestrate this, you know, this sort of end result where, you know, Piranesi ends up, you know, in this situation, um, again, without kind of trying to spoil it. I think the interesting thing about them is, you know, I don't know if they're evil, but they remind me of men in history who kind of have these big ambitions and these big goals and want to do madcap things and have no, no thought about what will happen, what they're unleashing, who it will hurt. You know, there is no 
thought for collateral damage, whether that's one individual like Piranesi or kind of thousands of people, you know, throughout history that have been affected by these choices that kind of mad, brainy, intelligent, but egomaniacal men have made. Um, and, you know, Okutuki is right, you know, that she doesn't sort of have to explain that in a way. It just, I found it, you know, I was thinking about people like, you know, I mean, obvious examples, but people like Elon Musk, who are kind of these big, huge kind of men that think there's no limits to kind of what we can do, you know, what we can yeah. discover and what we can sort of build. And, and, and with the men in this book, you think that, you know, they're in their race to discover something and in their race to prove that they're right about something and discover, you know, a new, a new world or a new realm. There's just no thought at all to kind of the people that they're going to be using as experiments and, and how they've destroyed these people. And, and I did find it interesting that she just doesn't go into any detail on it. You're just sort of like, oh yeah, we've all met men like this. You know, we've mm. all we've all seen them. You know, we've seen these big named men that you know there are there are many of them in the world um, who sort of get away with this stuff and are called geniuses. You know, because mm. in another world, you know, Valentine Kessery would be called. You know, he's just a genius. He's one what an interesting man. You know, never mind the people he hurt. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting kind of subtle subtle look at that. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. and sweat still beads her face when she slips her feet into Adan's old sneakers 
and grabs hold of the inner soles with her toes, worrying about her descent to the grey velvet blur of beach so far beneath her. She has been cautioned not to climb or descend the stairs on her own in her condition, and Adam has been instructed to build a banister to steady her, but they have both ignored the good sense of the fishermen who sometimes help her up them with groceries. The 25 cement steps to the ground remain just as treacherous as the day she first climbed them, 18 months earlier, with a string bag stretched into the shape of everything she owned. They are perhaps more treacherous, she reasons, with a belly the size of a beach ball disrupting her balance. So she leans on the weather-beaten wood of the house on her left and shrinks away from the sheer drop to her right. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, Choku, can you briefly tell us what this book is about? Yeah, so this book is set in Barbados and it follows essentially two two or three women and two or three men. So we have um, Lala, who's the central character, who is <clears throat> married to a man called Adan or Aidan. I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, she's a very young woman who has just, who's newly married. She's just become a mother very recently. And the story follows what happens between her and her very violent, abusive husband um, before and mostly after their baby dies under very, very sad circumstances. The story also sort of follows her and sort of weaves in and out the background of Lala's story with what happens to her mother and her relation and Lala's relationship with her grandma Wilma, who raises her and who tells her the story that gives the novel its name about how about a, a, a sister who essentially was punished for her disobedience by losing an arm. Um, and their story also follows Myra Whalen, who is I was going to say she's a white woman, but I think she's very very light skinned woman she loses her husband um when uh, lala's husband kills him in a botched burglary and the story follows sort of myra's back and forth about her feelings about her husband and we learn how her emotions towards her husband have sort of shifted and changed over the years and how she sort of has to um deal with the fact that she's lost somebody with whom she was never really able to achieve a proper resolution and an honesty about the feelings that she herself only partly understood that she was having for a number of reasons that are that are revealed later in the novel. Um, and the novel is this, this very, very um, brilliantly empathetic story. You know, um, I've been a secondary school teacher for about seven years. And one mm. of the things that we teach kids about is the fact that reading improves your empathy. Um, and I think this novel is such a fantastic example of that in that it weaves in and out of these stories so brilliantly. Um, you know, like I mentioned before, the, the threat of violence is ever present in this novel. And um, the, what's interesting is that in the Susanna Clark novel, like I said, the men who are um, very, these brutal, very, very selfish men, their brutality and selfishness is never explained it is presented as not needing an explanation what's interesting is here these characters of men like lawrence on sales she weaves in and out of their stories very very interestingly and delicately and just so cleverly to show us how men come to be the way that they are and how women come into contact with them and the vulnerability that's involved thank you so much and what did you think and feel about the book is it a book that you enjoyed I loved it. It was a very difficult read for me in some ways because of the of these themes of you know domestic violence, which unfortunately I do know about from, from a personal perspective. But it was beautifully written and so tenderly written as well. And there was a courage to it in a similar way to Susanna's Clark's book in that she she gives you a very gritty reality and sort of demands that you accept that it is reality without promising you any 
easy resolutions to it. I thought it was really, really well written. Thank you so much. Now, what were your thoughts on the book? Um, I found just like, okay, Juku said, like there is this really light touch empathy through the book that is amazing, even with a character that comes in as briefly as someone like the Queen of Sheba, brilliantly named, or her lover, Sergeant Buck Beckles. You get these like tiny slices of autobiographical detail and a lot of them sort of have either a religious flavor or a um a kind of uh something that goes back to your childhood like these things are very very deep-seated traumas that then um sort of bl bloom into these terrible acts of injustice that are played upon the bodies of primarily women in the community um it was unrelentingly grim you know there is there is no there's no sort of happy ending there. And I think that the lack of sort of, um, for want of a better word, kind of sisterhood in the book is is really stark and really interesting, but also really, uh, you know, it it is, it's real. And, it, you know, there is a kind of um, a belief that uh, if you ask for help, people come, you know, people will come and help you. But actually there are some situations that are so complicated and so grim that you don't even know how to ask for help. And I thought that was explored really beautifully. And that you have these dichotomies that are set up between, say, a husband and wife or a rich neighbour and a poor neighbour or a police officer and a criminal. And then they're just really broken down by the complications of that character's internal kind of struggle and trauma and psychology um and yeah I thought I thought the um there were also detail there were sort of moments that were because it's quite a it's, it's quite a naturalistically written book and then you have these like amazing little glimpses into times where one of the characters is trying to count her teeth and she's haunted by these nightmares of her teeth all falling out after having suffered trauma and that um, the way that someone's name is pronounced, these things that are actually really subtle and philosophical. And then you're back mm -hmm. into the kind of brutality of sharp edges and um, potential weapons and the food that people are cooking and, you know, that kind of thing. So, and, you know, for someone like me who has um, been brought up as a white woman in Britain, it's also like ludicrous how this is a world that I'm not particularly exposed to. And, you know, that it, this is this is a kind of a, a culture or a dynamic that I, I don't know much about. And so I, you know, obviously um, it was uh, a journey into the unknown for me in a lot of ways. And Bella, um, obviously a running theme has been is a definitely a difficult read but is it one that you also um, enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we don't have to labour the point that it is a difficult read, because I think if you mm. read the synopsis, you will understand that it is <laughs> yeah. a difficult read. Um, but that didn't mean it wasn't enjoyable. And as as both of you said, you know, she wrote, Sherry Jones wrote so beautifully. She's, su she's such a brilliant writer. You know, sometimes you read books by writers and you think, you almost get annoyed with them because you think, oh, you're so good at this, you know. And I, <laughs> I find myself kind of being paralysed because I'm like, oh, this is effortless. Um and I, I think there were three things that really stuck out for me. One was she is so sympathetic to every woman in that book, even the women who are kind of, you know, perhaps not particularly sympathetic or, or could be not sympathetic. I think the way she writes about every single woman is is so kind and and sort of full of love and understanding and forgiveness. And I just thought 
I, sh- I thought Sheree Jones is obviously a very nice woman. Um, so that <laughs> I thought was just so wonderful in a book that's so tough. She is so tender to the female characters. Mm. Um, and then I thought, you know, that the, the generational trauma of the book, I, I thought was so interesting. You know, we, we don't know enough about generational trauma, but it's something obviously increasingly we're aware of and sort of what that does to families. And and I thought that the, the main character and her mother and her grandmother, I thought that was such an interesting, clever plot to weave those stories through the book. Um, and then the third thing I thought was really interesting was the kind of the element of tourism, because I thought, you know, actually, you know, she's writing about this this island where, you know, they're so dependent on tourism and and the locals almost have to sort of put on their best face for the kind of the rich kind of people that are coming in just for kind of a week or two weeks or whatever. And then exploring the kind of what happens underneath that, you know, and actually I thought that was a really fascinating sort of look at it as well. You know, this this family who sort of who's, you know, Lala's husband kills, you know, this guy who's on holiday with his wife. And and she's kind of dependent on earning her living on the beach. And so she's kind of on outbraiding hair, you know, even the sort of immediately after her daughter's born, while while this kind of desperation is going on in her real life. And I thought, you know, that was a really interesting look at kind of, I know that Sherry Jones has talked about that, you know, that kind of, you know, she wanted to like have a look at, you know, her home without kind of, not just from the tourist perspective. And I thought that was a really interesting sort of plot point as well. I thought that's absolutely true, Bella. I thought one of the things that I found so fascinating was that there's a point in the novel when Lala has lost her child and she's obviously traumatised by this. And yeah, and then that affects obviously her work because her work involves her hiding any problems that she's got. You know, she works spreading hair on the beach and, and her work involves and requires her to hide any problems that she's got and to mask any pain that she might be feeling so that she can earn money. And I just mm. thought that really brilliantly captures, I guess, how trauma kind of piles on on top of itself. Like if you, if one thing sort of, there's a the domino effect that not only has she lost her, her, her child, but she's also experiencing, of course, these, this terrible emotional turbulence, which then impacts on her ability to earn a livelihood, which then impacts on her ability yeah. to get away from this horribly abusive man. And mm. it just really, really thoughtfully portrayed, I thought. Yeah, and it was obviously another character in the book who sort of has to be a gigolo for women that, you know, rich women mm. that come into the island. And, you know, again, that's such an abuse of power, but it's, you know, it's the only sort of work that he can get, you know. And again, I thought that's another tragedy, you know, that this man has to do this for a living when actually, you know, it's obviously not something he wants to do. And yeah, so it was all, I thought it was all really interesting, that kind of, that that angle on it. I was just going to about the symbolism of their house, that um, Lala and Adan's house, but in reflecting what you've just said about the kind of need to keep up a certain version of your life for outsiders in order for your interior life to even have a chance of functioning that amazing scene when there's like a big coconut tree that Lala suddenly wants to go out with a giant cutlass and cut down because it's really like she's suddenly really uncomfortable with it and but and then the steps up and down into her house have this huge drop and no railing and then there, there are people that come onto the threshold but are they allowed in and then that she can see onto the beach but she doesn't she's not allowed onto the beach because of the things happening there's like this sense of being trapped and threatened within your own home that I think is it's made all the more powerful because it's a beach on Barbados right it's somewhere that is seen as like a backdrop to a narrative of luxury western consumerism relaxation all of that kind of thing 
Yeah, she has to escape. They escape to the tunnels, don't they? When like when mm. they're sort of when they need somewhere to escape to, you know, that's almost like your home, but it's not your home, you know, because your home is also a place that, as you say, like other people use as this kind of backdrop to their their sort of magic moments on holiday. In that way, that everything we read now ties into the pandemic. I thought that that thing of other countries now, poorer countries, being desperate for tourism, even if it means kind of, yes. you know, making them making their own residents unsafe, you know, because they need the tourism. You know, I think that's a really interesting thing of like, how much do you need tourism, and how much does that impact on the people that live there? So yeah, I thought it was a really mm. interesting thing. And that all comes together really interestingly in that weird scene in the mini mart. Do you remember that bit where there's oh, like yeah. this two in the morning, like stumbling grief stricken trip around a supermarket that is um, staffed by locals, but it, it has in itself replaced, I think, like a Chinese restaurant. And like there's just this uh, the layer upon layer of what is for the community, what is for tourists, what is owned by us, what is used by us, you know, that kind of thing. I, I thought that was a, a really that scene sort of stuck with me in a weird way, maybe because it's, it's so prosaic and so frightening. It's like supermarkets are in every horror film for that reason, that you are supposedly protected from the danger of outside, but you are yourself feeling threatened and in danger all the time. Yeah. And I mean, she, you know, Lala is always feeling unsafe and threatened in her home, you know, Mm -hmm. so in a way there's no safe place for her, is there? There's, there's Mm -hmm. nowhere for her to feel safe. You know, even her home actually feels like the most, I mean, it is the most dangerous place, obviously, if you're an abuse victim, but you know, every time she was inside her house, I would sort of tense up, you know, actually Mm. I can see why, even though, you know, her baby has just died, she'd rather be on the beach, you know, in public and, that, but even on the beach, there's nowhere for her to be safe. And it just, it, there's, it's, tra- it's tragic and harrowing feeling for her, thinking there is nowhere you can go here. Yeah, and that's a really interesting sort of contrast, I guess, with um, the point that you made now, actually, about Tone, whose trauma kind of goes with him in a different way. Um, we find out in the novel that Tone was raped by a man when he was um, just a boy. And Cherie Jones writes really beautifully and very um, pointedly about how there is his sort of, there's, there's a thing that lives inside of him and she never really delves into it very much, which I think she does very artfully because we get the sense of the fact that he himself doesn't really fully understand it. He's not been offered counselling. He's not, he's not, you know, been really given the opportunity to process what's happened to him. And so because of that, it really, it, it's more than transforms him. It gives, it puts something inside of him, which he doesn't know how to process or get rid of. And that's a really interesting kind of contrast with Lala, who's, who is, who really could, and we want her in a sense, she could, I suppose, I don't want to blame her for staying where she is, but because her, her, the threat to her well-being is much more localized um, in the form of her husband, there is a, she can run away from it in a way that Tone can't. But then it's um, interesting you say that because you've just reminded me, is it in the first chapter that Lala has this thing about the scream that can't come out? There's, there's ah. literally like a scream in her mouth and then it just goes back down into the pit of her stomach and that's where it stays for the rest of the book. That like mm. The unlikely romance between, well, not unlikely, but the romance or affection or love even between Lala and Tone is almost because they're both carrying around this like unhowlable howl inside their yeah. bodies yeah I think yeah no, you know you're right and I think that the way that Adan treats Lala there's a kind of he it, it's a weird paternalistic kind of form of abuse in the way that he he says you're always your you're so own way he's like yeah he, he refuses to let her be an adult in any real way he refuses to let her use 
her initiative in any sense or to, to do to follow her own way mm. and when she does do that she pu- he punishes her so brutally um and i think there's something so sad about that in a way that i guess is similar for tone in that they've got the, they're both kind of like trapped in this place that is at this mental and emotional place that is so mm. unkind to them mm. i do have some further questions um, which are primarily about both books um I am interested to know um, from Okechukwu first, but I will ask all of you, if either of these books changed your perspective on anything, um, if there's anything that you feel differently about now than you did before you read both of these books. That's so interesting. I think maybe, I I don't think it would be fair to say that either book really changed my perspective on anything. Mm. Um, I think in that I think the same way about... um, uh, women who's been victimized and mm. about the men who victimized them as mm. i did before i read how the one-armed sister sweeps a house and i think the same way about power hungry men and you know what it's like to feel trapped and and and, and probably i think to, to be honest about the world in a mm. similar way um than i to what i did before i read piranesi but i i think that both books have sharpened the way I see things and added sort of detail and color mm. um i think that to to give that to have that perspective from Lala in which I think now made the point that um, Lala lives in a world without sisterhood. And I think mm. there's something so that there's something about that. I think that's going to stay with me for a very long time that, that was so um, tragic and so unfair for her that I think that, that really moved me. And in a similar way that, that, you know, Pyrenees, the story that she tells is a story of somebody who has been victimized and kidnapped. And that story has right. been told in some form Mm. probably loads of times but the way that she told the way that she tells that story and the way that she and the detail and the color that she adds to that i think also will stay with me for a really long time like it was I just, there was something so tender and so moving about the way that somebody whose intentions are so pure has been taken advantage of by somebody who has the that hasn't got the slightest idea how to look after another human being or or even cares and i think there's something about those those two elements of both books that I, i'll probably never forget thank you Okachuku. and bella yeah i'm not changed? sure i'm not sure if it's changed but i think actually it's it's probably more what Okachuku said earlier about um that they weren't necessarily books that you'd have picked up you know specifically mm-hmm. perhaps um and i think I read the whole of the women's shortlist and again, there were books there that I might not have picked up originally, but I loved both of them and they both stayed with me. And for me, books that books that stay with me on day three or day four books that I still think about a week later, I, I realize that they've enriched my brain in some way. So they both stuck with me and I think about both of them a lot. And so for me, it's more like a lesson in picking up books that you wouldn't normally, you wouldn't normally think, you know, I'm tired. I want to just read something, you know, easy or funny or gripping or whatever. And actually for me, it's just a thing about, about being way more broad minded about what I read and not just kind of going, this is the author I like, this is the subject I like, because both of these books taught me loads and, and sort of made me think about things. And, and I thought they were both beautifully written, which is kind of a joy if, if you read someone that can just write so sort of effortlessly as both mm. these women so yeah for me it's just a reminder to kind of to pick up books that I wouldn't normally pick up actually yeah I'd agree with that thank you so much Bella and now yeah I, I I agree with what with what's been said I think maybe the only thing that's changed my perspective more as a writer than a reader is mm. to be a bit more brave about leaving things unexplained I think that's something that happens in both books really powerfully that you get 
you know, you, you will get an image or you'll get a bit of dialogue or you'll get an anecdote and then it's just left hanging and it's up to the reader to kind of interpret it however they want. So the tunnels or like Wilma's, uh, the way that she deals with the um, news of her daughter having been raped or the way that Piranesi names all the statues or all these things that like that they're or I think it's that terrible image of the brown foul smelling sludge coming out from under a wall like you can give some you can give a reader a really powerful visceral image and if you've built your characters and your environment well enough up until that point you don't need to explain everything and it will they will you know your reader will carry on and they will have an emotional response and they will invest in those characters even if you don't give them like if you don't dot every i and cross every t so maybe it changed my perspective more as a writer than a reader that's a really good point i think also i've learned that if someone offers to take you to another realm you should just say no (laughs) (laughs) just say no kids just say no (laughs) Thank you so much, guys, for a brilliant episode and conversation. You guys were incredible. I was about to say amazing, and then it turned into incredible. It was like amazing, credible. So amazing, credible, barely credible. (laughs) (laughs) Your words, not mine. Your incorrect words. You guys are phenomenal. Thank you. I'm Yomi Adega Kay, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Bailey's and produced by Birdline Media. Head to our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk, where you can discover this year's shortlist of six incredible books, and where we will soon announce the winner. Please click subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It really helps spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.